Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us this morning. Thank you, Daniel, for reading our scripture and leading us in prayer. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Blake Godsey. I serve as the kids pastor here. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I did want to let y'all know about something exciting that was going on in kids ministry this past week. So this past Sunday through Wednesday night, we had our yearly VBS or vacation Bible school. So uh, our theme of that was uh, Jesus' power pulls us through. So we talked about how Jesus gives us the power to do hard things. We talked about how Jesus' power gives us hope. We talked about how Jesus' power makes us bold. And we talked about how Jesus' power makes us good friends. So we had a ton of fun. We had about 45 uh, kids there for VBS. We had lots of uh, kiddos that I've seen a lot here at Solid Rock, and then I had the opportunity to meet some kids and some parents for the first time. So it was awesome to see a good mix of, of people from the church and from the community there. And do just want to extend a special thank you to all the volunteers who made it happen, especially had a lot of people from our student ministry help out. Very grateful for them. And we had a great week learning about Jesus' power. So um, we are going to be continuing in our series in the Gospel of John today. And so as we transition there, I want to tell you a story about a time when I was leading a mission trip to a closed country. So this was a foreign country in which you are not allowed to share the gospel with people. So evangelism is not allowed. So you can imagine we're going to a foreign country. We don't know the language. We don't know how to order food. We don't know how to pay for where we're staying. We don't know where the bathroom is. We're totally lost. But we had this group of Americans who had been living there for about a year, and they met us at the airport, and they walked us through everything. They helped us understand what we were getting into, helped us do some of those very basic things. But uh, we were actually kind of pioneering a ministry in a new city. So the place where these, this group was staying was about two or three hours away. And so after about three days, they were like, all right, see you. We're going back to our city. Let us know if you need anything. But don't really because you're not really supposed to text us because, again, it's a closed country. So um, we're there, and it's me and seven other people. And I got to tell you, I've never been so terrified, so anxious to have this group of people under my leadership in a place I know nothing about. I'm like, how are we going to keep them alive with food? What if we get lost? What are we going to do? And in this story we're going to be reading today from John, Jesus is talking to his disciples about when he is going to leave. He's telling them that he is going to ascend back to the Father after his death and his resurrection, and the disciples are filled with sorrow. They're scared. They're terrified. And truly, all of us here today, I want all of us to be at a place where we realize, like the disciples realize, like I realized in that country, that we need a helper, and not just that we need a helper, but also that we have a helper in the promised Holy Spirit. So where we've been in John before this, we were in chapter 15, the very beginning of 16, and Jesus has told his disciples some really good news. He's told them the world's going to hate you. He said they're going to hate you because you follow me. He's also told them that they are going to be persecuted out of the synagogues, the social religious structures that they have become so familiar to them. And he's told them that they are going to undergo that difficulty. So now he's going to be telling them that he's leaving. So what we're going to see today, though, is because of the Holy Spirit, because of the helper we're going to read about today, that Jesus has provided all we need, that we have all we need to live a life 
that's pleasing to God. Let's open up in John 16, starting in the middle of verse 4. Jesus talking to his disciples, he says this, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus starts off by giving them this reason. This is why I hadn't told you about this persecution before. It's because I was going to be with you. I was still here. When Jesus was ministering on earth, uh, when he was in the synagogues, when he was debating religious leaders, he was able to take a lot of the brunt of that criticism, of that persecution. Sure, the disciples experienced some as well, but Jesus was there, and he was the uh, one who was creating this message that was creating such a stir, and so they had someone to target in on. When Jesus is gone, guess who they're going to go after? It's going to be his followers. And not only that, but you can imagine for the disciples when they're experiencing persecution and Jesus is right there beside them, how much easier it is for them to know that they're on message, right? That they're doing the right thing because they've got Jesus there for some instant feedback as he often gives them. We see actually in John 16, 1, he's going to tell them why he bothers to tell them about this persecution. He says, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. So what Jesus is telling them is that the reason he told them they were going to be persecuted and thrown out of the synagogues is because he doesn't want them to fall away from the faith. He wants them to endure. And you can imagine for the disciples, Jesus is gone. You've got these religious leaders who are telling you, no, you're wrong. This Jesus isn't the Messiah. You can imagine that they might be tempted to think, wait, was, were we wrong the whole time? I wasn't expecting to receive this kind of persecution. But Jesus has given them that warning that even when you're on the right path, you're going to experience this persecution. Uh, I think about a time when my wife and I, it was early in our marriage, we babysat for some friends who had three kids under the age of four. So, uh, yeah, we didn't have kids for a while after that. But... Um, it was a good experience for us. And one thing is, when the parents are there, they're telling you that, uh, okay, bedtime's at 7.30. Um, here's what they're going to eat. Here's what they can do. And you're like, yeah, yeah, got it, got it, got it. And now it's about 6.30, and the three-year-old comes up and says, can I have this piece of chocolate? And I say, mm, they didn't say anything about chocolate. I'm just going to go ahead and say no. M my dad always lets me have chocolate. Starts crying, and you're like, oh, man, I don't know. He's really upset. He seems like he wants the chocolate he said. Dad says it's okay. I, I don't know. I remember what they told me when they were here, and they were telling me. I remember, but now I'm not so sure. Now, if the parents had told us about the chocolate beforehand, we would have known what to do when we were confronted with this chocolate request. So I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving them this information up front. So when they are brought into this difficult situation of persecution, he says they'll be cast out of the synagogues, very important social, religious places for them. He said he's told them this is going to happen so that they can endure. And so in verse 5, Jesus is telling his disciples, too, that he is going to be leaving. He's going to be returning to the one who sent him. He's referring to the Father. He tells them that he's leaving to go to the Father. This is not the first time he has told them this. Okay, So he's told them this in chapter 13. He tells them, um, where I'm going, you cannot follow. In chapter 14, he's going to say, I go to prepare a place for you, and you're going to be able to know the way. I'm going to come back, get you. And in those instances, they asked, where, where are you going? In John 14, Thomas asked him, Lord, how can we know the way? 
And that's when Jesus gives that famous I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then back in chapter 13 when he says he's going where they can't follow, Peter says this. He says, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. But here in chapter 16, Jesus remarks that they aren't asking anymore where he's going. We're actually going to see later in the chapter, the reason isn't because they finally understood where he's going. We're going to see at the end of this chapter, they've still got some confusion about what does this mean that we won't see you any longer, that you're returning to the one who sent you. There's some confusion. But it seems like it's a situation where they're not really asking for information from Jesus, but rather these questions are an expression of their sorrow. D.A. Carson wrote a commentary on John, and he gives us this image to help understand the attitude of the disciples here. He says, a little boy, disappointed that his father is suddenly called away for an emergency meeting, when both the boy and his dad had expected to go fishing together, says, aw, dad, where are you going? But cares nothing at all to learn the destination. The question is a protest. The unspoken question is, why are you leaving me? The disciples are asking Jesus where he's going. How can we know the way? But it's this question of fear, of sorrow. And in this chapter 16, it seems almost they're too overwhelmed with their sorrow to even ask anymore, to even express. And Jesus says that to them. He says, I see that you are filled with sorrow. He recognizes that the fact that he's leaving and they're going to be persecuted, he knows this has given them a lot of fear, a lot of sorrow. He recognizes what this fact is doing to them. And if we want to fully recognize what the significance of this revelation is to the disciples, we have to kind of remind ourselves, okay, what? who exactly are the disciples losing? Who is this person to them? Who is Jesus to the disciples? Let's remember he's their friend, their rabbi, their promised Messiah, and he said that he's leaving and they can't go with him. He's told them that the world will persecute them for following him. He said that you, they will be unwelcome in their social, religious institutions. All the things they've known since they've grown up, they're not going to be welcome anymore because of him. And as you come into church today, maybe that's where you're at in your spiritual walk. Maybe you are filled with fear, filled with sorrow, seeing circumstances in your life that seem like you are not able to overcome them. Maybe you walked in here with some heavy sorrow, just like the disciples experienced at the departure of Jesus. So what is Jesus' encouragement then to those who believe in him? In John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus tells them that even as sad as they are at his departure, to be losing this person that's become so supremely valuable to them, he tells them, no, it's better if I leave. It's better if I go away because I'm sending you a helper. So this word for helper is the word parakletos. 
in Greek. It is a unique word. It's rarely used in the Greek language. It's rarely used in the New Testament. But what we do know is that this refers to like a mediator or an intercessor, someone who works on behalf of another, sometimes in a judicial setting. So imagine a courtroom where you have an advocate. That's kind of what we're considering here with this word. That's what kind of calls to mind with the word parakletos. And sometimes you'll actually see it in uh, the New Testament. Sometimes versions, they'll just leave it untranslated as paraclete because this word is so unique, it's so special, that they don't want to try to attach some English word to it and limit it. That this word paraclete is so unique and special in the New Testament that it deserves to be left as it is and to have that depth and that theological significance that is in that word. So this is the person that Jesus has said is coming to them, this paraclete, this helper, who we know is the Holy Spirit. We know this is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will be coming to the disciples. And he's telling them that the ministry of the Spirit will be so influential that it's better than having Jesus with them there in the flesh. And he talks about how if he doesn't uh, if he doesn't go away, then the helper won't come, right? It's not like a Clark Kent Superman situation. You can, it's not like, oh, they're never in the same room at the same time, right? But rather, let's remember, how do we as believers, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? In Acts 2.38, Peter is giving a sermon, and it says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we have to remember it's because of Jesus' completed work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, that we're able to receive the Holy Spirit. It's only because of what Jesus did on our behalf and our faith in what he did that we're able to receive the Holy Spirit. And this time after Jesus has ascended and the Spirit comes is a new age for God's people, the church age that is led by the Spirit. And I think it's easy for us as people to think, wouldn't it have been awesome to live in Jesus' time? Wouldn't it have been awesome to be there for the Sermon on the Mount, to be there for his baptism, to be there for, think of whatever your favorite biblical event involving Jesus is. Wouldn't it be awesome to have been there? And I think that's really natural for us to think because, first of all, we, we long for a day when our faith becomes sight, that this Jesus that we believe in, that we will see him face to face. We long for that day and we hope for that day. And second, I think that it's natural for us to think that because we, we think that it would have been awesome to actually see these things unfold before our eyes. But what is Jesus telling us here? He's telling us that it's better to live now in the time of the Spirit than even to live in that time when he was around. So anytime we're thinking and we're maybe wondering what would it have been like, I wish I could have been there instead of here, let's remember Jesus says this is the better portion. This is the better time to be alive because we have this helper, this paraclete, this Holy Spirit who comes alongside us, who indwells believers when we believe in him. So Jesus then in this next section is going to give us a little bit of insight on what this ministry of the Spirit is going to be. What is this helper going to do when he arrives? In verse 8, he continues, And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world 
is judged. So here Jesus is letting the disciples know what the work of the Spirit, what the role of the Helper will be to the world. So when we see this term, the world, in John, it has a special meaning. This word cosmos in Greek, in John's usage, often refers to humanity, to sinful humanity, to those who are opposed to God rather than the physical location of the world. So sometimes we'll see about Jesus coming into the world that may have more of this location idea, but when he's referring to the world, the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world, he's talking about what is the Spirit's ministry to those who are opposed to God? What is this ministry to sinful humanity? And we get three things that the Spirit is going to do. He's going to convict those who don't yet believe in Jesus, and he's going to convict them concerning righteousness, judgment, So the first one that we get is that Jesus will convict the world. And again, that's those who are opposed to God of sin because the world did not believe what Jesus told them about their sin. That's the first thing that Jesus tells us the Spirit will do. So Jesus taught in his ministry what is sin and what is righteousness. And he often came up against the religious leaders of his day because they had a misunderstanding of what righteousness was, of what sin was. And the religious leaders were unwilling to be convinced of their sin. They were unwilling to admit that all these man-made laws they followed, that that wasn't good enough, that it didn't resemble God's heart. I had a young lady come up to me at VBS. One of our stories was about Peter and John sharing the gospel and being arrested by the religious leaders. And this young lady asked me, Pastor Blake, why did, who were those people who arrested the disciples. I said, well, they were religious leaders. And she said, what are religious leaders? And I said, well, they're kind of like church people. And she said, wait, so why were church people arresting Jesus? And I was like, okay, okay, hold on. Not like church like right now, but they were kind of like the church people of their day. But I think the question has some significance to it. Why did the people who were seeking God, who were hopefully awaiting this promised Messiah, why did they reject him? Why did they reject Jesus? Why did they want to arrest people who shared about Jesus? They didn't like what he had to say about sin. They didn't like his message about what is sin because it didn't line up with what they were doing. So when Jesus leaves, the Spirit is going to continue that convicting work to convict the world of sin, to help the world see what sin is. And this is ultimately a gracious act. We are grateful that the Spirit reveals sin. Because all of us here, any of us who has believed in Jesus, we have been beneficiaries of this work of the Spirit. Now again, this work of the Spirit is to convict the world of sin. But any of us who believe in Jesus were one time of the world And we must realize at some point, if we are going to believe in Jesus, that there is sin in our lives, right? So anyone who has believed in Jesus has benefited from this ministry of the Spirit to show us our sin. And then not just our sin, but our need for a Savior and who that Savior is. To look to Jesus, to look to the cross. So if we are people who have believed in Jesus... This work of the Spirit isn't directly related to us now as believers. But that's not to say that the Holy Spirit does not also help us as believers see our sin, right? There are 
uh, a big role of the Spirit in our lives is to help us follow God. And let's remember what Jesus said about the Spirit's work in John 14, 25 through 26. He said, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Let the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So that's a promise of what the Helper is going to do for believers. And if we are honest with ourselves and Jesus' teachings are brought to our remembrance and if we're to line up our lives and our actions and our thoughts and our words and we put them up against what Jesus has said, we're going to realize there's sin in our lives. Even as people who have trusted Jesus, we're going to continue to have sin in our lives. And when the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance what the things of Jesus are, what the things of God are, we will see that we do not match up to his standard. So the second ministry described in this passage of the Holy Spirit, the helper will convict the world in regards to a false human righteousness apart from God. It kind of sounds strange to say that the Spirit's going to convict of righteousness, right? That doesn't seem to line up, but it's this, it's not a righteousness that is from God, but it's this human righteousness that, again, the religious leaders believed they were holding to. A repeated theme in Jesus' ministry was that he bumped up against these religious leaders and their idea of what is righteousness. He had a few terms that he liked to use for the righteousness of the Pharisees. He said they were like whitewashed tombs. They looked really nice on the outside, but inside were dead. He referred to them as a cup that was clean on the outside, but that wasn't clean on the inside and therefore wasn't suitable for use. And he said that they were people who put unnecessary, heavy burdens on the people with the man-made laws that they would come up with. This is the example of what it looks like to follow a righteousness that is from humanity rather than a righteousness that is from Jesus. Because ultimately, the Pharisees did not have a heart for God, but they had a lot of rules that they thought they could justify themselves by. If I follow these rules, I won't have to feel guilty. I won't have to admit I've done anything wrong. I won't have to come anywhere close to doing something wrong and breaking God's law, and I'll get to keep my place. That's the, the uh, mentality the religious leaders had. They thought that their righteousness was enough because of these outward actions that they could do. But Jesus served as a mirror to these religious leaders. He helped them see what their righteousness, their false righteousness, really was. And so when he ascends to the Father, the Spirit is going to continue to convict the world about its ideas of what righteousness is. Think of a person uh, maybe that doesn't know Jesus, has not believed in Jesus, but maybe still believes in a, a heaven and a hell, and you ask them, well, if you died today, why would you go to heaven? Almost 100% of the time, what you're going to get is, well, I'm a pretty good person. I do more good things than bad things. Um, I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. I think God would let me in. And ultimately, we know as humans, we, have, we all have sin, and God is holy and perfect. But we have this human righteousness in mind that is almost like this scale it makes think, well, if I do more good than I do bad, then I should be okay, right? Unfortunately, that is not the standard of God's righteousness. God's righteousness, the standard is perfection. So the work of the Spirit hopefully helps us realize that we cannot be justified by our own righteousness, that we need to look 
to someone whose righteousness surpasses our own and ultimately find that in Jesus. The Spirit helps us realize there is no righteousness apart from Jesus. So the third ministry of the Spirit we see here is the helper convicts the world of false judgment because the ruler and author of false judgment is judged. So the third role of the Spirit here is to help show the world that its judgments are incorrect, especially in regards to Jesus. Remember, the judgment of the people of that time was that Jesus was a blasphemer and that he deserved death. That was their judgment. That was false judgment, human judgment. The role of the Spirit is to help expose that false judgment. And it refers to the ruler of this world who we know is Satan. And ultimately, Satan's work in the world applies to any who would not follow Jesus. Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees that in chapter 8 of John, that if they do not believe in him, then they are children of their father, Satan. And you know, religious leaders don't really like to hear that they're children of the devil. But at the same time, this is what we get with humanity. This is what we get from sinful humanity's judgment. We judge what is right to be wrong, and we judge what is wrong to be right. We have it mixed up. We don't have it. The Spirit's work in the world is to help us understand that that judgment is not true, but that the judgment of God is true, not the judgment of ourselves. And ultimately, we know that when Jesus dies on the cross, he's raised from the dead, this ultimate triumph over death that the ruler of this world, Satan, is shown to be powerless. And that means the same for those who would follow him, whether they follow knowingly or not. Jesus proved that the ruler of this world had no power over him when he rose from the grave. So the Spirit works to help see that this judgment is false and that Jesus' judgment, the judgment of the Godhead, is true. So in this section, Jesus explains to his disciples what the role of this helper, this paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is going to be to the world. But what does Jesus tell the disciples the helper will do for them? for us if we've believed in Jesus. Let's look at verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus tells these sorrowful disciples, these ones who are fearful of his departure, that he's sending them a helper who's going to provide all they need, and he encourages them that this spirit is bringing the same message that he brought. This is not some different spirit with a different message. This spirit is brings the same message that Jesus brought. Jesus recognizes here in verse 12 that the disciples still have more to learn, but that ultimately they cannot bear it right now. These disciples have a lot more growing to do before they get to Acts, and they're willing to share the gospel without any fear, even though they are being arrested. They have a lot more that they're going to go through before the Spirit does that work through them. But he promises that when the time is right, the Spirit will lead them into that truth, and not just that truth, but all truth. So in verses 13 through 15, we see 
um, this statement that Jesus kind of talks about, okay, he's not going to speak on his own authority. He's only going to speak what he hears. He's going to glorify me. It's going to be the f- everything that I have is from the Father. And it's just kind of, okay, so what are we saying about this spirit then? So I want to, before we talk any more about it, want to be clear, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity with the Father and Son. There's one God existing eternally in three persons. So what we're not seeing, we're not seeing some sort of consortium of individual gods who are working together. This is a passage about unity. So there's three things I think we can take from verses 13 through 15. First, Jesus wants them to be absolutely sure that this helper is coming with the same message that Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. That it's the same message that Jesus received from the Father. We'll remember that several times in John, we see that Jesus tells his disciples, I am giving you what my Father gave to me. I am sharing what my Father gave me to say. It's this idea that this message that came from the Father through Jesus, now through the Holy Spirit, it's the same message. They don't have to worry about, well, the Spirit said this, Jesus said this. That doesn't happen. They are in total unity with everything that they teach. The message, this wisdom, this truth the disciples are going to be led into is going to be the same wisdom and truth that Jesus brought. Second, I think we have to also remind ourselves that God's divine plan is fully revealed in Jesus. So when he says the Spirit is going to glorify him, is to glorify this revelation that God has given this person who has revealed the character of God. In Hebrews 1, the writer is going to say, In the past, God spoke through the prophets in all sorts of ways, but in these days, he has spoken through his Son. Jesus is the epitome of what it means to see God in the flesh. He is God made flesh. So for the Spirit to remind them of what Jesus said, to glorify Jesus is to ultimately glorify the whole Godhead, the whole Trinity, because he is God made flesh. And third, most importantly, this language is language of Trinity. We believe in one God existing eternally in three persons. There is no division amongst them in terms of their unity. They have had eternal unity since before time began. Their message is the same. The plan of redemption is the same. Jesus wants them to know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're working together. We are together. We are in unity. We are the Trinity. And these verses help reveal that unity within the Trinity because it's so, almost so much mixed up that you recognize it's all part of the same God. It's all part of the Trinity. So what hope then is to be found for the believer in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of persecution, and as we seek to pursue God, as we seek to follow Jesus. Ultimately, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit is given to us when we believe in Jesus. We need a helper, and we have one if we believe in Jesus. The coming of the Holy Spirit is not something that was thought up on the spot. This is divinely ordained by God, and we see it even in the Old Testament, hundreds and thousands of years before the giving of the Holy Spirit, we see it prophesied in the scripture. One of the most prominent passages is from Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit 
I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So before we believe in Jesus, we have a heart of stone. It's not able to please God. We're not able to do things that please God. But when we believe in Jesus, that heart of stone is replaced by a heart of flesh and uh, ultimately the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This helper isn't just somewhere roving around. The Holy Spirit dwells within us as believers. We are able to live with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can remind us of what Jesus taught, that we will be able to obey God's commandments, as it says here in Ezekiel. Apart from the help of the Spirit, we don't have a solution for how do we figure out how to obey God, because again, we are sinful. We all have sin. The Spirit helps guide us into true righteousness, away from sin into true godly judgment. God knows that we can't follow Jesus, that we can't endure to the end without help, so he has provided help in the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you're looking at your life and you are feeling that fear, that sorrow, those circumstances that seem too big to overcome, they are. They are except for those who are guided by the Spirit. With the Spirit, we are able to work through that sorrow, that fear, those circumstances. We have the strength because we have the Spirit of God within us. And if we're here today and we think that a righteousness of our own is good enough, we're missing it. We're missing it. We have to know that only the righteousness that is through Jesus is the true righteousness. And we all need a helper in our life to live for Jesus. I want to remind you, when I was back in that closed country, we had this mysterious figure in the country. She had a code name. I'm telling you, this was legit stuff. And her code name was the Dove. And whenever we needed something, we could, if it was an emergency, we could reach out. And we could let her know, and she would come meet us, and she would come help us. And she was an incredible resource. But the Holy Spirit's better than that. We don't have to send a text message. We don't have to wait for her to arrive. We don't have to uh, set up a meeting spot. The Holy Spirit's always with us, always guiding us, transforming us to be better followers of Jesus. We all need a helper, and God has provided one in the Holy Spirit. So if me talking about this, this faith in Jesus, this role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, having the Holy Spirit, if that seems foreign to you, or maybe that's not something you've ever believed. Or maybe you, you have believed in Jesus, but you've not gotten to the point where you wanted to proclaim that publicly through baptism, but you've been feeling like that's where God is leading you. Or maybe as I've spoken, you've remembered something in your life that has caused you great sorrow that maybe you're really trying to push to the side. You don't feel like you can get through it. I just want to let you know that we're going to have some prayer partners here at the front as we end the service, we're going to have our elders out in the commons. We would love to have the opportunity to talk to you about what it means to become a Christian, what it means to be baptized, to pray with you, to help you as a community of believers to walk through the things that you're going through. So before we close today, I just want to leave us with a couple of questions for reflection. First, what is currently filling your heart with sorrow? 
How do Jesus' promises and the work of the Holy Spirit encourage you? Second, how does it strike you that Jesus tells his disciples that his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit is actually better? What does that mean to you to live in a time where we can have the Holy Spirit? Third, how can you have a posture that is more receptive to what the Holy Spirit is leading you toward? Fourth, where in your life is the Spirit leading you into truth that you're resisting and what's holding you back? We know that the Spirit is leading us into true righteousness, to truly understand sin, to have a true and right judgment because of what Jesus completed on the cross through his death, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension. And he has not left us alone, but he's left us with someone to remind him of those things that he has done on our behalf. Now I just want to pray to close us just to thank God for what an amazing gift he has given in the helper, in the Holy Spirit, and just to ask that we would be obedient to what he's leading us to. Let's pray. God, we are just so grateful for who you are. We thank you that you are our one God existing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you so much for the promise of the Holy Spirit that was in this passage just promised, but now we have seen the coming of the Holy Spirit, that any who believe in your name will receive this Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given us a helper to get us through the difficulties we face in a sinful world, to help us become more like Christ, to help us glorify you. We thank you that you've provided the Holy Spirit for us. And we just ask that you would help make us more obedient to the Spirit, to understand better the leading of the Spirit, to understand better the comfort of the Spirit. Lord, we know that we are so blessed to have your very presence with us. We ask that you give us recognition of how wonderful that is. And ultimately, Father, we want to bring your name glory. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus.